If you would please turn in the Bible to Acts chapter 28. We're this morning going to look at the very last few uh, verses of this book that we've been studying together for uh, almost 18 months. Uh, so this is a very uh, special time, I think, for us as we see the conclusion of this, this exciting and extremely important book. If you would please stand. I'm going to begin reading the passage at Acts chapter 28, verse 11, on page 937 in the Pew Bible, or uh, take up the sheet in the insert. Luke, the author of Acts, writes, After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to set you to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness 
and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for a moment. Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, come to this passage with um, gratitude for all that you have taught us in the book of Acts. We pray now that you would send the Holy Spirit upon us, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts, that we might, Father, hear you, see you, believe you, and rejoice in you, that this great salvation, Father, may be preached to the ends of the earth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. been interesting to me uh, coming in to uh, preach on the book of Acts. Uh, Metrocrest had been studying Acts for a long time when I showed up in December of last year. Um, I'm coming up on completing nine months and it's been an exciting nine months and most of it has been spent with the book of Acts. We look at, looked at Philippians, we looked briefly at uh, Jonah, but most of our time has been spent looking at the book of Acts. And so this has been for me, a kind of a bittersweet week, uh, looking at this final section, thinking about all the adventures we've had, all the travels we've been party to, all the things we've seen, all the amazing, amazing things that Paul has taught us. And so, as we come to this last sermon uh, from Acts chapter 28, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed it, how, how much it's blessed me And I hope it has blessed you. And I hope today, as we wrap up this series, that there will be a a wonderful exclamation point, if you will, uh, on the book of Acts. And not only the book, but our life as a result of what we've learned from the book of Acts. And I have more to say about that in just a moment. Um, I want to give you three headings, more travelogue, uh, more history, and finally, more mission. Let's think for a moment about the travelogue. I've made the point, probably ad nauseum, how interesting it is that uh, the book of Acts records these remarkable travels, um, echoing many different works from antiquity, not least of which is uh, the Odyssey or the Aeneid, uh, history uh, of the amazing travels, the exploits of these uh, mythical heroes, well, here in the book of Acts, we have the ep- episodes, the exploits of a true historical figure. Uh, Luke has taken great pains to anchor everything about uh, this story in history. And, and so the, the travels being described here, to me, are fascinating. I, I love to travel. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of my love languages is travel. I love traveling. And so... That, that resonates with me, and this last chapter continues that remarkable description of the travels of Paul and the rest of the apostles. It, it really describes the last leg of Paul's trip from Jerusalem to Rome. If you look at verse 11, after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. That, that's significant. The ships from Alexandria were these huge grain-bearing ships. They were enormous. They had big crews. That was part of what Paul had experienced when there were all these hundreds of people on board a ship. That was also a grain-carrying ship. Well, here, a ship of Alexandria set sail from Malta on its way to Syracuse, the first stop 
in uh, this uh, trip, um, a ship of Alexandria. And it's interesting, Luke describes it as having the twin gods as a figurehead. That probably doesn't mean much to you, but the twin gods were Castor and Pollux. They were extremely important deities for seafarers. Castor and Pollux were the sort of the, the patron deities for seafarers. And uh, the Castor and Pollux, the twin gods as they're called here, we know them sometimes as Gemini. The constellation Gemini is named for the twin gods Castor and Pollux. And one of the interesting things about Castor and Pollux, this pagan deity in the Roman pantheon, is that they were uh, conceived as twin half-brothers. How does a twin half-brother work? Well, scratch your head and figure that one out. But the, the way they understood it was that one of the twins was the father, the son of a human father and a human mother, but his twin brother was the son of Zeus and that same mother at the same time. It's really an interesting, crazy thing to have in a mythological religion, especially perceived from the point of view of the Christian faith, which believes in not two gods with half, uh, half-brothers with one father, but one person who has within himself both the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. Interesting little, interesting side note. That ship bearing Paul to uh, Rome had at its very bow this pagan take on this idea that the incarnation represents the truth of. So here's Paul on the ship headed for uh, Italy headed for Rome. The twin gods is a figure of this pagan, these two pagan gods on the bow of the ship. It says, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. Regium is on the uh, Italian mainland. So uh, Paul had gone from Malta to uh, Syracuse. Then from Syracuse, Uh, After staying there for three days, they made their way over to the Italian mainland to Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, it says, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Again, that name doesn't mean much to you and me probably, but Puteoli was the great uh, port of Rome. All these enormous grain-bearing ships from Alexandria and Africa made their way up to Puteoli, and they offloaded this mountain of grain which fed the people of Rome. Came in through Puteoli, this this port. Again, what a remarkable picture of Paul on this grain ship bearing food, nourishing food for the people of Rome. And uh, they put that off, and it says in verse 14... There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Um, They finally make their way in their travels to Rome. Uh, Seven days uh, there as they uh, prepare themselves for going into this remarkable, remarkable city. Uh, Goes on to say... In verse 15, the brothers there, when they heard about us, that is in Rome, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. 
On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So here the travelogue sort of draws to its conclusion. It's the trip of the Apostle Paul from Jerusalem, the the center of the Jewish religion, to Rome, the center of everything else. And the the travels that have led him there to... to, um, to the significant places in the world of the day, these, these places that stood out on the, on the maps of the minds of the people who lived at that time. Uh, it really is a remarkable travel log. Uh, places like Three Taverns and the Forum of Apius, th- those don't mean much to us either, but those were the cities, the suburbs of Rome, sort of a day or so outside of the city limits. Uh, It took a while to travel 30 or 40 miles in the ancient world, so you had to stop. And so the forum at Apius and the and the three taverns area. This was this was sort of the 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 sub the outlying suburb as you made your way into Rome, as you prepared to come into Rome. You as you came from the south passed through these two places. Um, Apius, about 40 miles from Rome. I I don't know. It's maybe something like a first century Denton. You're making your way to Dallas, okay? Uh, the Forum of Apius was a, was a significant place. As you prepared to come into Rome, you passed into the, the first century Denton. And there in that place, you sort of got oriented. You began to, to think about making that final approach into uh, Rome. Uh, they mentioned the, the, the three taverns, uh, about 30 miles from Rome. And uh, this is sort of the last stop before you enter to the, to the, to the main part of Rome. Uh, the three taverns actually refer to a general store, a blacksmith's, and a refreshment house. It wasn't just a place to get refreshments. It was sort of the place you went to get everything else you needed. It was a little bit like a first century Bucky's. Uh, as, you're, as you're making your way on your journey, you would stop at the three taverns. And so Paul and his friends, these brothers who've come to meet him, they meet at the, at the first century Bucky's and they prepare themselves to make that final entry into Rome. And that's what happens as Paul draws near in verse 16 and, and they draw into Rome itself. That's how Paul concludes the travel log. What a remarkable experience this travel has been it, it it's it's you know it's interesting what travel symbolizes even today uh, travel is is a, sort of an intensified sense of God leading us when, when we stay put these things aren't necessarily in the same uh, relief in our minds but when you're traveling when you're away from the things you know the best when you're particularly vulnerable when you're exposed when you're away from your people as you make your way in your travels this this is a time when our need and our our weakness is particularly exposed if you travel much you know what i mean it it's uh, it's it's it can be very draining to travel exhausting to travel you're you're away you're constantly adjusting and the book of Acts is sort of uh, concludes with this dramatic, intense expression of the vulnerability of Paul, who has made his way from Jerusalem all the way across his known world over a period of years. Vulnerable, weak, exposed. He makes his way as he concludes his travels 
to Rome. And maybe you're feeling weak and exposed and vulnerable today. You don't have to travel to to feel weak and exposed and vulnerable. But that's the Paul we see here at the conclusion of Acts chapter 28. He's made his way this remarkable journey, these travels where God has led him along, sometimes explicitly with visions, uh, intense visions designed to help Paul in this unique role know where is he supposed to go next? What is he supposed to do? These these experiences are so unique, they're actually written down in the Bible. Don't expect your trip to include a step-by-step guide from the Lord. If you wait for that kind of guidance, you might be waiting a while. But Paul got that kind of guidance because his journey was unique. It was so important. And so the Lord, at several points, specifically comes in and speaks to Paul and directs Paul as he makes his way to this final destination in Rome. So much more travel here in the concluding chapter of the book of Acts. We've seen so much, and it concludes fittingly with a description of that last part of the journey as Paul goes into Rome. There's also more history. I told you a few weeks ago I confessed to being a, an, a, a just a, a, an unapologetic uh, but slightly... Uh, uh, embarrassed history nerd. I love history. I, I don't know if you like history or not. I love history. My poor family can tell you how much I love history. I love looking at historical things. And Acts chapter 28 does not disappoint. Because for a history buff, there's so much here. And it, it centers around this idea of Rome. The, the word itself just calls to mind so much history, volumes and volumes, whole libraries of history are all wrapped up in this word, this idea of Rome that shows up here in uh, verse 14 and uh, again in verse 16. Much history is wrapped up in that idea, that place. Um, This is actually the fifth reference to Rome in the book of Acts. The first reference is all the way back in Acts chapter 2, verse 10. At the very beginning of the book, when Paul was delivering his Pentecost sermon, well, it's actually mentioned that at that first Pentecost, there in the crowd, there were, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, visitors from Rome. And it actually specifies that they were Jews and proselytes. In other words, people had come all the way from Rome to Jerusalem. They'd made that same journey in reverse. They had come from Rome to Jerusalem to be in Jerusalem as they celebrated the great feast of Pentecost. That was one of the Jewish names for the feast of Shavuot. The great feast that was a celebration of the harvest, the bounties of the harvest. The first fruits it's actually called. The Feast of First Fruits. So gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate this, this uh, first fruit of, of God's blessing were Romans. People who come all the way from Rome to be there in Jerusalem. And they're actually mentioned in Acts chapter 2 verse 10. Uh, there were Jewish converts in Rome as early as weeks after Jesus' death. Isn't that remarkable to think about? Just weeks after Jesus died, 
there were in Jerusalem Romans who had converted to the faith of Israel. And they were there in that initial crowd on that first Pentecost when the Holy Spirit moved Peter to preach that first gospel sermon at the very beginning of the life of this church that God had called into being by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first reference. The second reference to Rome comes in chapter 18, verse 2. You might want to look at that. It's a very short reference, but it says that Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, uh, who um, it says had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And the reason he'd come there is, is interesting. He had come, Luke says, because the emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. I mean, that's, that's interesting. I mean, the first Pentecost, there were Jewish converts who had come from Rome. That's in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 18, all the Jews had been kicked out of Jerusalem. And that's actually not just the record of the apostle, uh, the, sorry, the uh, writer Luke. It's actually found in a whole list of other sources. It was, it's a historical fact that the emperor Claudius, who was the uh, fourth Roman emperor, uh, because these Jews were proselytizing, because these Jews were, were actually sharing the faith that they had, the faith of Israel, and people were converting, and because of that, they had been expelled from Rome. Jewish converts had been expelled from Rome. And so the very next reference in the book of Acts, after this initial reference, is to the fact that people like Aquila and Priscilla who became converts to Christ, had also experienced persecution and hardship in Rome and had been forced to leave Rome. And Claudius is a fascinating character. This emperor, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 2, this emperor Claudius. Claudius was, as I say, the fourth emperor after Augustus and Tiberius and Caligula. Uh, along came Claudius. And they say the reason Claudius survived was because he was, he, he was such an... Uh, a, a person of, of such poor intelligence and search, such poor ability that he had survived with all of his other relatives that had been killed and he wound up becoming emperor because there wasn't anyone else. That was Claudius. And he came to the point where in his anger and hatred he threw the Christians out of Rome. Well, when Claudius died, guess who became emperor? It was Nero. Nero was Claudius's adopted son. So when this awful emperor Claudius died, along came the, the uh, villain of villains, Nero, who became the emperor and was in fact emperor, according to all the scholarly estimates I've been able to find, he was emperor when Paul arrived in Rome the son of the guy who'd kicked Aquila and Priscilla out of Rome in the first place. That's the second reference. The third reference to Rome comes in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. And here Paul sets his mind to go to Macedonia, that's Thessalonica and Philippi, and to Achaia, that's Corinth. And it says, after I have been there, he says in 
uh, Acts uh, chapter 19, verse 21. After I've been there, I must also see Rome. I love that choice of words. I must see Rome. He had more to say about what he would do in, in Rome. But here it focuses in on his, his desire to go and see this remarkable place. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine the place Rome had in the mind of someone who lived in that area in the first century. It was, it was just the, the center of everything. Power, wealth, influence. It all rested in this ancient city, Rome. And Paul said he wanted to go see it. Scholars think there may have been as many as a million people, from 450,000 to a million people, depending on your scholar and how big is the area you measure. It's a problem today. How many people live in Dallas? Well, how far out do you go? Well, based on some estimates, if you went out far enough, there were a million people who lived in Rome or near Rome. What a, what a remarkable sight that must have been for someone who lived in the scale of the first century to come into this city that 30 miles out, 40 miles out, you're coming into the, to the, to the gravitational pull, if you will, of this great city. He makes his approach into Rome. Doesn't mention it, but just imagine Paul going to something like the Roman Forum. Well, 2,000 years later, the Roman Forum is still there. It's in ruins, but you can still go look at the Roman Forum. And 2,000 years later, it's still very impressive. It's it's this uh, ruin today, but it, it represents the temples and the schools and the marketplace it represented the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate still stands. The Julia Curia is still there where the Roman Senate met. That's all still there. You know what the word senatus, uh, the, Greek, the, Roman, the Latin word senatus, which we get the Senate in Washington today, the senatus meant old men, sort of like the, the Latin equivalent of, of elder. All right? This, this, this place that represented the power of the empire that reigned over Jerusalem and Palestine and basically the known world. All of that, so much history was wrapped up. It's a little bit like visiting something like Washington, D.C. today, even more so, but a little like it where you get my son just moved to Washington, D.C. We're praying for him. Pray for my son, James. He's starting out his time in Washington and uh, what a re- crazy place to live. I mean, for him, he spends a lot of time in media. And you turn on the television and you're seeing on the screen the same stuff you see out your window. It, it's the same place. Well, for Paul, visiting Rome was like that even more so. He was there where the Roman Empire ruled from. So, history, so much history. The fourth reference to Rome comes in chapter 23, verse 11. And this, I think, is particularly significant. It's one of those places where the Lord shows up to specifically direct Paul. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also. In Rome. Uh, Paul did not wind up in Rome uh, for some random reason. It wasn't a mistake. 
It wasn't a foolishness on his part. Paul went there because, as he understood it, the Lord had sent him there. In fact, Acts concludes with Paul obeying what Jesus had told him to do as he goes and he prepares to give testimony. He had a purpose, and it was to give testimony to Jesus. What a remarkable story, this this. This book full of geography and history sort of boils down into the concluding verses. Paul, in a room by himself with one guard, he's there, and it describes what he does. What, what, what would you do? Your first night in the big city, your first, your first period of time going to this place where you've been called. Well, Paul gets busy with doing exactly what he was told. So there's... there's travel, there's history, finally, and most importantly, there is mission. See, that's what the Lord had sent Paul to do, to give testimony. And so he goes to Rome, the capital of the known world, and he begins to do exactly what Jesus had told him to do. And he begins, first of all, as he always did, with mission to the Jews. Uh, This is um, in uh, chapter 28, verses 17 to 28. Uh, Paul uh, goes, it says, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a beautiful picture to me, a, a poignant picture. Paul has been chased from Jerusalem across the known world. I mean, basically, every time he goes into a place, the first thing he does is he goes to witness to his brothers and sisters, the Jewish people. It's the first thing he does. He's done this in place after place after place after place. And he goes to Rome. What's the first thing it says he does? He called together these people that he loved. They were his brothers. They were his sisters. He loved them. They were his people. You know, I I can't understand Christians who hate Jewish people. Uh, There's a certain weird strand of Christian theology, which comes to hate Jewish people. Well, here at the very end of his life, if anyone had a reason to hate Jewish people, it would have been Paul. But he gets to the end of his life, and what's the first thing he does? He calls together all the Jewish people he could find, and he he addresses them as he always did. Brothers, my family, I love you. But the, the, the poignancy of this moment Though I had done nothing against our people. That's a beautiful word. Our people. He's speaking to other Jewish people. Against our people. Or the customs of our fathers, he says. Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to see me at liberty. When the pagans examined Paul, they were ready to set him free. They didn't find anything justifying this treatment. They were ready to let him go. And if we've been following closely the book of Acts, we see that. The Romans actually come across, for most of the book of Acts, looking pretty good. Even the worst of them, compared to the religious authorities among the Jews. The Roman authorities were ready to set him free. But because it says there was, uh, the Jews objected, in verse 19, I was compelled to appear, appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, 
since it is why? It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul makes it clear there is not a shred of space between his ministry and what he was proclaiming and the hope of Israel. He's going to go on, it says, a little further down. He goes on to try to explain using verse uh, 23, the law of Moses and the prophets. Uh, Paul takes their scriptures and he opens their scriptures and it's on the basis of their scriptures that he does what? He preaches Christ. There was no distance between what Paul taught and what the Old Testament taught. The Old Testament looked forward to Christ and the gospel is built on Christ. So Paul stresses the, the oneness of this relationship. You know, there's a stream of Christian theology that hates Jews. There's another stream of Christian theology which equates the Jewish way of approaching God and says that's a valid way. And then there's a Christian way, a separate Christian way. There are two different ways to approach God. Paul says, no. No, there's one way to approach God for the Jew and for the Gentile. The one way to approach God is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There aren't two parallel ways. So it's actually Paul here at the end of his, of his ministry, his mission, and he, what does he do? He pulls out his Bible, and on the basis of the Bible, he shows from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And he tries to convince them, it says, about Jesus. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. We're not told how many of each group, but there were both responses. But verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people, that is to Israel, go to Israel and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And notice what God says, that even here in this word of judgment, if they would turn, he says, I would heal them. So even here in this pronouncement of judgment, when, when Paul takes an Old Testament text and applies it in a, in a very dramatic way, there's this hope that if you turn, if you repent, if you turn to the Lord, He will heal us. Even at the very end of the book, the Jews have chased Him across Europe, all the way to the center of the known world. And even there at the, at the last chapter of the book if you will turn I will heal you I mean the church was built on Jewish converts I mean most of the people who in the book of Acts respond to the gospel most of them are Jewish people so it's not as though Jewishness makes it impossible to turn to Christ that that wouldn't be right that that would be contrary but the fact is that there is a, a certain mindset that can infect our hearts. A blindness, a deafness, a refusal 
that's what had happened. So Paul pronounces this judgment. It's not against every Jew who ever lived or will ever live. It's not saying anything like that. It's underscoring the dilemma. A sovereign God, a sovereign God, but people who are in active rebellion against him, who refuse to submit to him, who refuse to see, refuse to hear. So the the mission to the Jews here in the last chapter of Acts basically changes. And I think the book of Acts in part is written to explain why the church no longer goes first to the Jewish people. We had a wonderful advancing in missions meeting this weekend. The amazing Kathleen organized a little group of us to go over and spend the day yesterday at uh, uh, Redeemer Church McKinney talking about missions. Well, we talked about missions all day long. Not once did we say the first thing we do is we go to the synagogue. We didn't start there. Why? Because of Acts chapter 28. Mission shifts gears. We, we still reach out to Jewish people. Absolutely. I've got Jewish friends who I pray for, I share the gospel with. I've seen Jewish people in the 20th century, in the 21st century, turn to Jesus. It is a priority. It's something that matters. It still happens. But when we go forward now with the gospel, we don't start in the synagogue. Now, we do start with the Bible. We still start with the Bible. And so actually, the the book concludes with this remarkable transition. And the book, in a sense, explains this transition. The gospel is now aimed, it says Gentiles in our translation, verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. That's a perfectly valid translation. But the word Gentiles, ethne, actually means nations. It means nations. Now, Paul probably meant the other nations he knew about. When he, when he said those words, he didn't know about China, let alone about North America and the, the aboriginal tribes and all the people scattered over the world. It was much bigger than Paul, in his own understanding, could picture. Even sitting in, sitting in Rome, he couldn't imagine the world that we now see. Turn on your television, you can see the world. Well, the promise is the nations will listen. See, that's the basis of advancing in missions. We have this confidence that God is already at work. He is already preparing. He is already opening ears and opening eyes and opening hearts. He's preparing people in the year 2021 so that when a little church like ours decides to invest in mission, we send our precious young people to go take the gospel to the other side of the world, God's already there. He's already at work. They will listen. Now, we don't know exactly what that will look like. It it certainly doesn't mean there won't be challenges. There will be challenges. The book of Acts concludes with Paul here in jail. He's free to do what he needs to do. It says he's he's, uh, living two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. And notice what he spent his time doing. Proclaiming the kingdom of God teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church does in mission to this day. We proclaim Jesus, we proclaim the kingdom, we teach about him. That's what the church does. We're not just in the business of helping meet people's physical needs. We, We may do that as we go along. I hope we will. But our mission 
is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do, just like Paul did at the end of the book of Acts. Let me uh, draw this to a conclusion. One of the problems the Jewish people had back in verse 22, and it's, it's a very revealing thing they say, we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect... See, they understood Christianity as a sect. The word sect is actually the word for heresy. They had a fundamental misunderstanding. They thought Christianity was just sort of a sect, a little personal opinion. They didn't understand who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And we need to understand that, who he is. He's not our village God. He's not the God of the United States of America. He's not the God of the Republican Party. He's not the God of the Democratic Party. The God whom we worship is the God of the world, the God of the universe. And so the book of Acts closes with Paul free to preach what he's going to preach, but not for long. It says he lived there two whole years. Well, we know from other sources, church tradition, that there came a time when Paul wasn't free anymore. See, Nero, the emperor who succeeded uh, Claudius, got crazier and crazier and crazier and further and further away from reality and, and angrier and angrier and more and more violent and more and more self-centered, more and more self-obsessed. And at the end of Nero's life, before he died at the hands of his own people, before he died, he put Christians to death. There was a, a huge huge persecution of the church and that's how Paul died tradition says and the oldest scholars say Paul died with Peter Peter the the apostle to the Jews Paul the apostle to the Gentiles died at the same time in the same persecution according to tradition and, and church history so just in final thoughts wrapping up the book of Acts you know what I as I was thinking about Paul in the book of Acts chapter 28 I pictured Paul at the end of this journey, having lived through so much history, I pictured Paul singing a first century equivalent of Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. That's the God of Paul. This book hasn't been about Paul. It hasn't really been about the apostles. It's been about the God we meet in Jesus, who strengthens us through persecution, who strengthens us through hardship and suffering. The God who Paul wrote about in all of his letters and the God whom we see in the book of Revelation who shows that it's all leading, it's all leading to a glorious exclamation point. And that's Acts chapter 29. We're living through Acts chapter 29. We're living through that unfolding of God's purposes as he calls to himself the nations. We get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. Paul did. We do too. In our own little tiny ways, we get to be a part of it. What a joy that is. What a privilege that is. What a blessing that is. What a responsibility that is to take mission to heart.